Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about why do custody battles bring out killer instincts in parents? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, why a killer instinct? She's exaggerating. (laughs) I don't know. If If you haven't been through a custody battle, consider yourself very fortunate because even the most timid um, peace-loving people amongst us uh, get into another state when it has to do with um, feeling as though their soon-to-be ex-spouse or perhaps already ex-spouse is fighting you to try to take your child away. That just creates an incredible... um, situation that really gets people into their primal instincts. Now, if you're still not convinced, (laughs) let me tell you about a story that um, was in the news recently in Los Angeles. Uh, You may have, even if you didn't, if you don't live in California, I think this this went nationwide, certainly, if not international. It was a very sad story. Uh, There was a man, well, there were two parents who were in the midst of a custody battle. The um, mother's name was Anna Estevez. And, um, well, the story, the story started by the police finding a man, the father, uh, Mr. Andresian, in a park in Pasadena. And he had been uh, found unconscious, and then he came to, and he claimed not to know where his son was. Now, he, was, um, he had taken his son to Disneyland. It was his day to be with his son, and he didn't return the son to the mother you know, at the time that he was supposed to that evening. And so the mother called the police, uh, reported the son missing, and the, they found the father in the park, as I said, passed out. In a very suspicious kind of way, they arrested the father, but then they let him go because of lack of evidence. Well... <laughs> Fast forward, it turns out that this father, first he, he, not, he pled not guilty or he claimed he didn't know where his son was. You know, it was a wonderful excuse um, that he was unconscious. Um, and he had doused his car with gasoline, undoubtedly, to hide uh, any evidence of his having murdered his son there in the car. Or we don't, at this point, we, we're not really sure of where he murdered him or how he murdered him, but what has happened is that he has changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. Now, what he soon did was leave California. Um, he went to Las Vegas. He changed his appearance. He, he shaved his beard and his, his mustache. He dyed his hair blonde. Um, he was searching uh, on his computer for places to go where there isn't extradition. Now, there's more to the story, and I'm telling you this before I get to my guest, a very illustrious uh, family attorney who deals with this kind of, these kinds of things every day, not necessarily murder, although I'll have to ask her about that. Um, but this is an example of how the courts, and, and from my own experience, if you've been listening to this show um, or know from... Uh, know about me. Uh, I'm one of one of the hats that I wear. My day job is as a psychiatric expert witness and a forensic psychiatrist, and I have been involved in countless uh, custody cases, divorce and custody cases, and they are very very sad. And it does bring out the worst in the parents. Um, so the father. As it turns out, the father had taken the, the little boy to Disneyland with um, the boy's aunt and his grandmother, and they did this, you know, after they found the father in the park and they let him go, um, they did this search for two months to find the little boy. And eventually, um, they, you know, what's significant about all of this is that the, when, you, when you hear about what each of these parents said in court if the court took the mother seriously, 
um, they, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, the father in court records said that the mother spanked their son, used profanity, and talked of taking their son to Cuba. He said he, he, he complained about or was concerned about the wife's father. He said that the wife's father practiced the religion of Santeria and once sacrificed a rooster in front of the child. This is what the father claimed. He also claimed that the child had been sexually abused by Omar, um, who he said was the son of the mother's new boyfriend, TJ. Um, when the police you know, inquired about this at the time, she told the police she didn't have a boyfriend, and then social services got involved, and when a social worker asked the child about these allegations, the child admitted that he wasn't telling the truth because his father had told him to lie. But what did they do? <laughs> they still gave the father unsupervised visitations. Now, the mother, in the meantime, was this, um, seems like, on paper, a picture of, uh, and, you know, if you've seen television um, interviews of her, or pictures of funeral and so on, um, she was an elementary school principal. She said that, she told the court that her husband falsely said that he was a stay-at-home dad who was their son's primary caregiver, and that wasn't true, um, her mother and father took care of the child uh, when, when she was at work. And the child was only five years old, by the way. I, mean, I should have mentioned how old he was. He was just five years old, very sweet child from all, uh, you know, he seemed like a very special child from all the reports about him. She said that her husband had a gambling problem. He was addicted to prescription drugs. Said, she told the court that her husband said that if anything were to happen between them, he would take the child to Iran or Armenia, which may well have been one of the countries that he was planning, you know, checking on to see whether they have extradition. So what did a Los Angeles County judge do? <laughs> they ordered the mother to pay her husband's spousal and child support because the father wasn't working, and then he gave joint custody to both of the parents. Well, you know, this is just an example of um, how frustrating uh, courts can be, family courts can be, when they, in my experience, and I'll ask my, uh, you know, my guest about this, that uh, in my experience, there is a tendency to favor the father, to believe the father more than the mother, you, typically because the mother gets hysterical about, you know, the father lying and so on, and then they decide that, um, that the mother must be, you know, the, bad, the worst parent, and it's supposed to be to decide who, which parent is in, which, how it would be in the best interest of the child to spend more time with one or the other parent. So the mother said her evidence was ignored, and um, she had produced hard evidence, but her husband's statements without any evidence was, were relied upon. And so now the husband, the father of the child, is in jail. He is going to get, be sentenced and will likely get a very long sentence, but that doesn't bring the child back. So let me bring in my guest now to discuss all of this and other cases that she's seen and her experience with the family courts. Her name is Alexandra Levinsky. She is a family law attorney in West Los Angeles. She... Um, has a lot of experience with things including separation, uh, divorce, child custody, child support, prenups and postnups, domestic violence, restraining orders, high net worth divorce, all of the above and more. Anything regarding um, families, basically. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and let me just give you some more credits. <laughs> she, Alexandra, was named as a rising star by LA Magazine. Um, Super Lawyers Edition. She also has been the Family Lawyer Law Attorney of the Year. She is um, in all different uh, bar associations, including the Beverly Hills Bar Association, which I am a member of as well. So, Alexandra, I'm sure you must have a lot to say about this case. I'm sure you you were as fascinated by it and saddened by it as I was. So, what what would you like to say about it? Well, one of the things about this kind of case and uh, cases such 
as this that are so frustrating is when one goes into court and asserts their position with evidence and the court doesn't buy it. And as the attorney, all you have left to say to your client is we will stay vigilant. We will watch the situation. But when another parent does an act such as what occurred in this particular case or more frequently leaves the country with a child, there is no remedy at that point. And so one of the most important things I believe going into court with is hardcore evidence of the allegations one is making. And it's very difficult because many times a child may say to a parent, this is what daddy has said. And that a parent will file either an emergency motion or a regularly noticed request for order and will have nothing to go on but what the child has said. And then you have a situation where the court will not hear from the child, will not set a PPA, which is a parenting plan assessment, will not order any kind of 730 evaluation to evaluate uh, the allegations, and the court simply denies them. That's a terrible situation, and that is exactly what I believe went on in this particular case. Um, yes. What about I mean, that, what I was saying before about uh, have you had that experience where you know, when that happens, what you're talking about, when the father is bringing in, saying all kinds of things, or even getting the child to say all kinds of things, um, and you can't really, um, you know, the mother gets so frustrated and upset, and, you know, the judge looks at her <laughs> with a scorn, a stern, a scornful face, and, you know, decides that she's hysterical and shouldn't have the child. Right, absolutely, and and what I believe that that line of thinking goes back to is in the state of California, the policy of the state is for the parent more likely to avail the other parent of a close and bonded relationship to have primary custody of the child. So many times the court hears or sees what it perceives to be alienating conduct and it is usually mom who's accused of this alienated, alienating conduct yeah. by either purportedly being oversensitive or uh, just alleging that dad is going to leave the country, making these allegations that the court doesn't believe. And then the court does look at mom or the parent who seems more, quote, quote, hysterical, who usually has insight into the other parent and deems them the alienated parent, the alienating parent and a danger to that child having a close and bonded relationship with the other parent when this could have all been part of the manipulation scheme that one parent experienced during the marriage. Another problem, however, is when you have a parent who, uh, when we are young into the divorce or separation or paternity non-marital uh, litigation, turns around quite quickly on the other parent and deems their behavior to be uh, terrible and not in the child's best interest when they may have been participating in the same behavior. Mm. So what I find is that when a parent wants to complain about old behavior as a basis for denying custody, we must be very careful of that because that too the courts uh, see as alienating conduct. Also, the courts say, well, if the parent uh, um, believed that conduct was okay while they were together, then the only reason they're asserting it's not okay now is to keep or interfere with that relationship. And the courts um, are really uh, in line with making sure that that doesn't happen. Well, have you ever had a case where um, one parent or the other, I mean, I guess it would be more typically the father, but where either a parent kills, you know, where something is violent in the midst of a, a custody dispute? Um, well, I have, first of all, um, quite um, uh, consistent with the earlier case we were talking about, um, I had a case 
um, where um, I was hired um, by the father in the midst of allegations of sexual abuse. This is a case that was post-judgment where dad and mom had equal custody. Um, mom uh, then made these allegations and the court took the daughter away from dad. Dad hired me. I went into court and um, the court found at that ex-party hearing that the allegations were unfounded but were, uh, was unwilling at that ex-party hearing to change custody. Hmm. And that night, my client had a very weird instinct who drove by the mother's house, and the mother had taken off and gone to Peru. Oh, my God. So, yeah. <laughs> so my, my client then um, waited uh, a number of about eight months, tried to work with the district attorney here, and through the international kidnapping arena and couldn't get anywhere. So he ended up hiring a private company to go to Peru um, to get back the child uh, because in the interim, I, of course, got an order awarding him sole legal and physical custody. Uh-huh. But what happened was um, they saw the child. He got a hold of the child. He had one vehicle, and the next pickup vehicle was not there. So he was captured, um, and he remained in jail uh, where that slander sloop person is. For wait, over wait, wait, a year. The fa- wait, wait, wait. The father was put in jail? Yes. The father Why was, was the put, father in jail? put in jail. Like for ki- they claimed Peru, he was kidnapped? Yes, Peru considered it kidnapping. It's now all been turned around, but the child remains in Peru and dad remains here and mom is incarcerated. Oh my God. We are incarcerated in- getting the child extradited essentially here. Wait, so the mother is in jail in Peru? Yes, now she's locked up in jail for kidnapping in Peru in violation oh. of our American yeah. order. Right. So where so who's taking care of the child in Peru? Is in social services. They're they're <laughs> equal to social services. And they continue to promise that the child will be returned to my client, but he cannot go back to that country. Because they'll arrest him. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, that's such a sad but good example of how twisted these cases can get. Exactly, Uh. especially if you don't, you know, we had the court. The court believed us. She made these orders, but she was unwilling to take the, the next step that we needed, which would have not been detrimental to this child, to be in dad's custody until we had a full hearing on it. Yes, yes. Ah. Oh, my. All right. Well, we do need to take a break. My guest is Alexandra Levinsky, a family law lawyer in West Los Angeles. We're talking today about why do custody battles bring out killer instincts in parents. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today about why the custody battles bring out killer instincts in parents. My guest is Alexandra Levinsky, a family law attorney in West Los Angeles who has received all kinds of honors, like being named as the rising star by L.A. Magazine's Super Lawyers Edition. Uh, She was named the Family Lawyer Attorney of the Year um, and all kinds of other accolades and, and has tons of experience in this. And you wanted to kind of add a little bit to the story you were telling before the break. Yes, I wanted to say that if, if any of the listeners are interested, that they can Google Dustin Kent, K-E-N-T, uh, and he is the Northridge um, uh, person that I was just speaking of that was my client and that now has returned safely home but awaits the return of his daughter. And can you imagine, you know... <laughs> Being here, the court was originally decide, trying to decide which would be better, the mother or the father. Certainly, being in Peru by herself, even in social services, would is the worst option. Absolutely, it's devastating. Ah, oh, the poor little girl. God, um, you know, and that's kind of one of the things that uh, when these judges make mistakes and horrible things happen. Like I was wondering this story we were talking about at the beginning of the South Pasadena five-year-old who was uh, killed by his father in a custody dispute. Um, You know, I I wonder, what does, of course, they didn't, I haven't found the judge's name, but um, you have to wonder, you know, how does that judge feel? Does he think, oh, well, uh, you win some, you lose some, or is he really devastated by it? And I'm assuming it's a he because of the way that the, uh, because most judges are he's and because of the way he seemed to, uh, totally dismiss the mother's claims about the father. What do you think? Well, um, I I often wonder the same thing. And when I I obtain a custody order that I find so offensive and upsetting, I wonder how would the court feel if we had to march back in with a worst-case scenario. And it, it most often comes up in the drug and alcohol cases. Uh-huh. Before you have convinced the court that a drug testing and alcohol order are really appropriate and necessary, you have to beg the court many times because addiction and the, the um, evidence of addiction, especially when parents are separated by home now, is not that easy to come by. And so many times you go in with the evidence that you have and the actions that are so inconsistent with a coherent person and you get nowhere and you Mm -hmm. just wonder and, and argue to the court. I've literally argued to the court, do I have to bring the child back in a body bag? Mm -hmm. Is that what this court will require? Mm -hmm. And then you have other judges that are in line and that understand the complexity of addiction. But in today's world, we have judges that run the gamut of, of uh, age and experience, not only with family law, but with the drug world. And in today's world, um, the prescription medications uh-huh. are so prevalent, especially in uh, these more uh, complex and um, higher uh, economic range cases. So a lot of times people don't understand what the signs and symptoms of those kinds of addictions Mm -hmm. look like, and it takes a long time, or an expert 
to convince the court, which is why experts are so important, whether it's for the impact of a parent's behavior on a child or domestic violence, which is, again, another area very unseen by the court. And it's hard to prove it, but if you have an expert, the courts want to listen to experts, which is why someone like you are so important to what we do. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. had in that awful case, had there been a a, a real yeah. uh, psychological or psychiatric expert to explain what dad's behavior was and how that corresponds with abuse of a child or in the complexity of, uh, uh, of that, that kind of custody dispute, then the court may have been more willing. But again, yeah. financial burdens yeah. prevent that, as do access and knowledge. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, you would think the mother in the case, this Pasadena case, you would think the mother is b- being a principal in an elementary school would know, you know, would be sophisticated enough to know the importance of having an expert. Um, and yet, yes, there are financial considerations. Um, but how many of how many principals do you see and have I seen who think there's sexual abuse to their own children and they're a mandated reporter and they would report anything walking off the street into their office like they see on their own children, but they don't ever think of reporting for their own children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think when we have people who are so engrossed in these fields, we assume that they can see it, but they see it for other people and other children. Yes, yes, that's true. That happens sometimes too. I remember a case I had. One of the one of the more disturbing cases was um, of these parents getting divorced, and they had two little kids, one, a little girl and a little boy. And um, the mother, I had been retained by the mother's attorney. And um, the mother brought the children in. I was doing a, a psychiatric evaluation, and uh, she brought them in. Um, I was doing a psychiatric evaluation of the mother and also somewhat of the kids, but the father, you know, this is one of the things that happens. Sometimes one parent does, doesn't allow and the court doesn't order uh, a full psychiatric examination of the children or of that parent, you know, that you just get to see one person. Um, and um, and right away, you know, early on when I saw them, I remember the first time I saw the children uh, and talked with them and so on, I was able to tell that the little girl, from, you know, my experience of years, able to tell that the little girl had been sexually abused by her father and the little boy was being physically abused. Well, the father happened to be a big shot in one of the um, uh, high-profile studios in town, <laughs> in L.A., in Hollywood, and um, so, you know, he, uh, that impressed the judge more, and um, people didn't want to believe that, that, that how could this man, this, this big shot in this big studio, he wouldn't sexually abuse his daughter. Well, uh, so they gave custody, they divided custody, and a year or two, and I reported this to Child Protective Services, which is kind of, uh, which is, you know, they're, they make lots of mistakes, um, and they didn't do anything. They, too, you know, were impressed and, and uh, didn't recognize the danger. About a year later, in school, sure enough, uh, she was making some of these same behaviors indicative of childhood abuse, such as um, fondling herself, um, you know, in, in view of everybody else, those kinds of things, uh, humping things. Um, and, she, you know, then they called, a teacher called Child Protective Services, and now she was a little older, so she was able to describe more about what was going on, and sure enough, you know, they did find the father, um, uh, they did find that he had been sexually molesting her. But here, it went on for a year or two more that she could have been um, prevented or protected from being with the father unsupervised. Wow. I don't, yeah. Wow. I'm sure you've had cases like that, too, where, I presume, have you? <laughs> I mean, yeah. where sexual abuse is a big one where sometimes I find that, that judges, I mean, whether it's because one parent is a big shot, usually of a father, or because, you know, of the, of the judge's own background, um, sometimes that's, that's like the hardest thing to prove. 
It is, absolutely. And uh, one of the reasons it's the hardest to prove is because with most of these cases, as you know, when DCFS is involved, they do do an examination, um, but oftentimes the abuse has uh, not occurred recently or is not invasive enough or the type of sexual abuse to result in scarring or anything that they are, they are going to mm-hmm. see in that forensic examination. Mm-hmm. So then you have a situation where the court is totally relying on the lack of uh, or the absence of evidence in that regard when there's a real reasonable basis that there might not be that evidence. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And and I have I have absolutely had that case before, um, and I've had cases before where the court where um, DCFS where the uh, forensic forensic examination may find some kind of scarring, but the court doesn't really know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to, and you have a child who certainly is acting out. I've had courts that I had one particular case that is coming to mind where the judge and the uh, 7:30 evaluator both said we believe something happened, but we don't know what that was. Mm. I mean, we don't know what happened, but we believe something happened based uh-huh. on the way that the child is behaving and the things that the child is saying. Yeah. Um, you know, and then if you have a situation where a parent doesn't want to involve DCFS, g- getting them to have a forensic is- examination or have any kind of real evidence is very difficult. So then the parties, uh, you know, the court is left to rely on the credibility of the parties. And as you said to begin this conversation with, just one parent acting emotional for the obvious reasons, could set a judge off in believing that these allegations aren't true. And what people also don't realize is the judges look out in the audience when people, when they're dealing with other cases and Uh their facial expressions are being used by the court to determine the credibility of the allegations. Uh And I always say that it's important for people to remain and look respectful and expressionless. Uh (laughs) for that particular reason. Yes, but of course it's so hard because, you know, I mean, it's so hard for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, one is because because typically and obviously in a divorce, you know, there has been uh, disappointment. Maybe one parent has cheated on the other or one parent has, you know, like in this case, maybe the father wasn't working. So, uh, you know, that's a disappointment. In various cases, the father or the mother could be cheating. Um, or doing other things that, that are causing the divorce. And so one parent is feeling a lot of rage. They want to take revenge um, on the other parent. This is just some people, but, um, and they want, I mean, yes, there are such a thing, there are such things as amicable divorces, but they are very, in my experience, they are very few and far between. So if a parent is feeling rage and wants to get revenge and wants to punish the other parent, they know especially when it's a father to the mother, and I know I'm sounding very sexist here, but just from what I've seen. Um, so, of co- you know, they know that the way to hurt the parent, especially the way to hurt the mother, is by taking the child away for as much time as possible. Or also, oftentimes, a father, I'm sure you've seen this a ton, um, a father doesn't really want to have more time or even half time with the child, but they ask for that as a way to not to not have to pay so much child support because the more time usually the more time a parent has with the child the more child support they get so that's another reason um, I mean you've seen all of these things of course yes I mean that's that's always a difficult one um, because I always want to believe that parents do want custody of their children, not because of the financial uh, result of that. And again, what becomes apparent uh, by staying vigilant is whether or not the other parent is actually participating in having the child or is the child just coming home and sitting on a couch for 9, 10, 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and not being attended to. So those are the ways that we know that or f- we can find out about it. But, we, but I also caution people that you never want to say that out of the gate 
when you are before the court because that's another uh, red herring uh, that uh, courts look to, especially without knowing the background of the judge. If a parent says the only reason is for child support, that could forever hurt your pursuit of mm-hmm. getting back custody because, it's, because uh, the other parent is not doing what is appropriate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they will course, always that- refer back to that. Uh-huh. And, of course, another uh, reason why parents get so uh, back to their primal instincts is because a child, you know, is half, the DNA of, of a child is half from one parent and half from the other parent. And so the idea, unconsciously, when one parent is trying to, you know, take time or more time with the child away from the other parent, it feels like that a parent is stealing a part of you, like literally taking away some of yourself. Absolutely. I mean, we see that especially with the younger children who haven't been away from one parent for any given time or what parents is really harsh is when a parent is ordered to express their milk to give to another parent. Um, Those kinds of things make it very con- uh, confrontational and difficult. Yes, yes. I mean, and of course it isn't to say, I just want to, you know, a lot of times it is um, the other way around too. It can be the other way around too, that in fact the father is really the better parent um, and uh, the mother, um, for example, you know, you're mentioning milk. Um, I was involved in a case where a mother was claiming, that, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen this, where a mother was claiming uh, that she needed to keep breastfeeding her child, that she needed to have, you know, um, almost full custody, right, because she needed to keep breastfeeding the child. And the child was two and a half years old, and she yeah. was still breastfeeding the child. Yeah. And, um, you know, trying to use that as an excuse to, for why the child uh, needed to be with her more hours of the day than with her, his, her father. Right, and that's very dangerous because I, I have turned that around and that can be very offensive to the court. I think that restrictions are, uh, at any age um, older than one years old, are looked at strangely by the court. Not strangely, but wondering if it's being used to interfere. The other interesting aspect of what you said uh, previously with why the parents feel or uh, one parent feels destroyed by a child being taken away is many times there is a strange enmeshment at the beginning of these separations where the parent perceives the father or the other parent to be as mean to the child as they are to the parent. Um, and that isn't always the case, but it's very difficult for parents to step back and see that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a meshment too, but the yeah. courts are more and more uh, finding that parents should have 50-50 custody. Um, and you mentioned also that, you know, it happens, yes, on um, the father's end as well. Well, again, with the addiction issue, and, you know, so that is where you have a real fight for dads trying to come in because the fathers, I find, are traditionally the party more likely to say, I don't want to take the child away from the other parent, from the mother, mm-hmm. if we're talking about a traditional male-female relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, so you me, have less of that unless there's addiction. Uh-huh. Let me, I, I, unfortunately, I need to interrupt you because we do need to take another break. My guest is a family attorney, Alexandra Levinsky. We're talking today about custody issues and just how tumultuous they can get. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Stay tuned. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with my guest, Alexandra Levinsky, who is a renowned uh, family law attorney in West Los Angeles and um, who has received numerous awards and been considered a rising star. (laughs) Um, And we're we're talking about uh, custody battles. Why do custody battles bring out the killer instinct in parents? And here's another example of a case just recently, too. I spoke at the beginning about the South Pasadena uh, case of the father who killed the son, the five-year-old boy. Tragic story. Here's another tragic story. Uh, in Santa Rosa, California, it was uh, a father who uh, killed his two children. He had a six-year-old girl and a 19-month-old boy, and he, um, he had the children for Father's Day, and he was supposed to bring them back to their mother's home on Sunday night, you know, Father's Day night, but he never showed up. So the mother called the authorities, and uh, they went to the father's house. They didn't, you know, see any signs of anything, so the police didn't, you know, I guess they knocked on the doors, no one answered, and so they went away. And they came back on Monday, and what did they find? They found all three of them dead. Um, The father had killed the two children and then himself. He had hanged himself. And so the mother wrote this really poignant letter that I will read a portions of, She wrote, I sit here at 7.06 a.m. on Tuesday, June 20th, 2017. So that was like the Tuesday after the Father's Day. Swaddled in my daughter's blanket and drinking tea from a cup that reads, I love you, Mom. Fighting back the tears and struggling to make sense of this horrific situation. And then she uh, ends her letter with, I sought help on numerous occasions and said many, many times, many, many, many times, My children were in danger in their father's care, and I didn't receive the urgent help I needed to save them. So, um, you know, this is yet another example um, of what can happen if the court isn't informed enough and doesn't, um, doesn't believe enough, you know, oftentimes... I mean, whether it's a jury or a judge, people are, are influenced by their child, their own childhood, you know, their own unconscious feelings about issues. And that colors their, can't help but color uh, their decisions and opinions about things. And um, I think in, in custody, it's, it's especially important for judges to not allow to do ever to get as educated as they can about psychiatric you know, dysfunctions, disorders, narcissistic personality, borderline personality, uh, domestic violence, all kinds of things like that, so that they can make a more informed decision. So, Alexandra, what, what would you like to add to that? I, I agree with you. I think that it's very important for courts to be informed uh, in order to make decisions. But what I see regularly 
unfortunately, is that courts have not read the file. Judges have not read the files, uh, even if it's a non-emergency motion. And it's very difficult in two minutes to explain to the judge the urgency of the situation and how this really, really is really, really necessitates emergency action unless the courts hear, excuse me, sexual abuse or kidnapping, they often don't get it. <coughs> well, and and it is true. It you know, I was talking about the cases, the case, and there I've been involved with many cases where um, typically, obviously, it's going to be the mother claiming sexual abuse by the father, although, of course, it could be other permutations. But... Um, but you know there there are some cases where a mother will claim that when it isn't true just to get custody or to get child support or whatever i mean that does happen too to be fair yes it does happen and the courts come down extremely harshly uh, uh upon people that are found to lie to the court in order to obtain a custodial advantage and I believe that most courts will use that as a basis to change custody and even order monitored visitation to the parent who lied to the court. Yes, it's very, um, you know, you know, what's so sad is that a lot of times the fathers who, um, whether they abuse the, you know, sexually abuse or physically abuse or do some other kind of abusive behavior or just, you know, do not have the best interests of the child in mind. Uh, these are typically the narcissistic, borderline, sociopathic kinds of fathers. And, um, and they, these are the most charming fathers. I mean, it's not just fathers, you know, uh, in, in the world. <laughs> you don't have to be a father. But people who are, I mean, sociopaths can charm the pants off of, <laughs> off of women, off of, you know, people off of judges, off of, off of anybody. That's part of their, uh, part of their makeup. And, and that's um, very scary to, to clients. Yes. Because they know that, and they come into attorneys' offices, and I'm sure um, experts' offices like your, yours, and say, look, he's going to be able to charm everyone. Yes. This is part of his shtick. Yes. And you try and convince them that uh, law will prevail, equity will prevail, and sometimes it doesn't. Yes, and especially um, with DCFS, uh, some DCFS people, or some, well, with fe- typically with females, you know. Um, I had a case recently, very, still in the process of being uh, disputed and um, where there was clear evidence of the father having sexually abused this little girl. I'm talking about a different case. <laughs> Seem to get a lot of those cases. Um, and um, and she did have a uh, um, the mother took her that night to for a to the hospital for a a rape kit a rape exam. And of course, you know, mothers often don't want to do that because they don't want to put their child through that. If in fact it didn't, nothing happened. You know, it didn't happen. Um, it's a hard decision for mothers to to go along with that in in case, uh, hoping of course that it really nothing really happened and the child is confused, especially if they're really young. So she did have um, a, a rape exam and there were um, there were some findings, but they were somewhat in a gray area. And uh, although although the uh, the um, DNA, you know, there, there was even there was even um, some protein found indicative of sperm and so on. I mean, it wasn't that ambiguous, really. And so, um, so of course, I wrote that you know that the father should only have monitored visitations and that this did happen and so on. And um, and even DCFS in this particular case, there were people in DCFS who had seen the child before I ever got involved and who had said that the child had been sexually abused by the father. But then they got a whole new um, cadre of DCFS workers who were charmed by the father and who decided that, no, I don't know where they thought that sperm came from, but no, he didn't do anything wrong. And so, um, so the, the judge did give some, started to give, he had, had supervised, and then the judge allowed some unsupervised. And sure enough, the child came home and um, had been 
sexually abused again. And what happened? What's the current status? The child is now in the custody, was taken from both of them because, because the, the social workers were trying to say that the mother was making this up. And so now um, the child is kind of like a peru and Now the child is in uh, the care of foster care, um, and it's still being litigated. I mean, it, it's just, you know, all of these things, all of these... Um, Poor decision-making things can happen that can have such devastating effects on the child. Absolutely. I mean, everything uh, has a devastating effect on the children, and, and it's even the minuscule things that people don't realize, such as custodial exchanges that are the most stressful for these children. Oftentimes, they fear what is going to happen between the parents all day, looking towards the conflict and what is going to happen, and it's traumatic, and parents don't realize it. The kids are expected to continue to act as they acted prior to this divorce, and it's a terrible situation or separation or paternity action. Yes, and of course, in general, and I'm sure... uh, you know, you probably say this to parents all the time. Try one thing that's not really talked about enough, like in the media, is how divorce, even if it is relatively amicable, amicable. I mean, we're talking about all these horrible things that happen, but um, there are there are some cases that are less horrible. And but even when it's relatively amicable, just the scars of divorce. Period are traumatizing for children and affect them for the rest of their life. Especially if the parents do not handle it appropriately and understand that it's necessary for the children to speak to a therapist, to have an expert, to have a family meeting, to explain what's going to happen. Parents move through this like it's only about them. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we, if the parents could sit down and say, look, mommy and mommy or mommy and daddy, whatever it is, are are not going to be together, but we're always going to love you and this is the plan. Children want to know a plan. Mm-hmm. What children don't want to know is what children don't want to know is that there is no plan, mm-hmm. or that they don't know where they're going to put their head uh, that night because the parents think it's appropriate to have the child go back and forth every single night when none of us adults could ever live with that kind of situation. Yes. Yes. The divorce well, many times turns people and separation turns people, the adults, into very selfish individuals. Yes, because the adults are hurting, even if it is, even the adult who, you know, supposedly wanted the divorce, uh, initiated the divorce, both parents are hurting. Um, it's, it's traumatic for them, too. But, yes, it's, the key is trying to get them to put the children first, and certainly, as you mentioned, to put the children in their own therapy in addition to what, you know, getting experts for the court case. But all children, all, divorce, all children of divorce, while the separation, the divorce is happening, even before the custody, um, they need to be in their own therapy. Well, let me, let me thank you, uh, family attorney Alexandra Levinsky, and I want to give out your website, which is LevinskyLaw.com, L-A-V-I-N-S-K-Y, Law.com. Um, check her out. Look at all the uh, cases that she's done and the interesting articles that she has on her site. And obviously, <laughs> you obviously are very sensitive to all of these issues and, um, and really, Thank I'm you. sure, take care of the I really your, appreciate the, the opportunity. Okay. Well, Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 